Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. We're in this uh, series of Ephesians where we are going through for about three months this entire book of Ephesians. And this is a beautiful book that has three chapters. It's just rooted in identity. And then the last three chapters are kind of now, how do you express that? How do you now live in this identity? And last week, uh, there was a lot of work done on kind of the background and history of Ephesus, the connections between Ephesus and San Diego, um, just to all set this up. And we spent time in the first two verses of Ephesians, as well as Revelation, when John, who was later the pastor at this church, wrote, to the church of Ephesus says, you forgot your first love. And so this is where we're at now. We're going to be looking at verses 3 through 14. And so if you want to grab your Bibles, you guys can begin to turn there. But I was thinking about, as I was prepping for this, um, reading this passage, which you'll see in a second, but I love those moments when you talk to like a four-year-old and they just got back from Disneyland and you ask them, how was your time at Disneyland? And you can't even interrupt them. I mean, they're just like going on. I saw Goofy over here. I went to Toontown over here and like, oh, I ate this and the churros were awesome, beignets, and they just go on and on. You just can't stop them. There's this explosive kind of joy that comes out of a child, most likely, when there's this, this excitement, right? It's, it's, it's like kind of what worship is, is when there's this overflow of joy and excitement, you can't help but stop them. They just keep going and going and going and you listen. And this is actually kind of what Paul does in this one little section of Ephesians 3 through 14 is actually in the Greek, it's one run on sentence. So th- verses 3 through 14, just one sentence, no punctuation that stops it. He doesn't stop to take a breath in his flow as he just pours out this nonstop expression of identity. And so this is all about identity. The first three chapters of Ephesians is all about identity. And what comes clear throughout the mind of the authors of Scripture is that we now know in psychology is that we live out of identity. So Paul makes it clear to a group of new and diverse followers of Jesus. They're probably confused. They're trying to figure out how do we now be this new family that doesn't always look like me, doesn't always sound like me. They don't eat like me. They don't even think like me. And so the questions that begin to arise in an environment like this is who am I and who are we and what are we doing here anyways? And so letters just a bit of context. They're expensive to make. And so Paul, um, for example, when he wrote 1 Corinthians, that's 16 chapters. That would have taken the equivalent of $2,300 just to write and to send that one letter. So Paul, sitting in prison, takes roughly like $250 for this one run-on sentence. This is an expensive sentence. And it's all of its grandeur and fervency is just to say, this is who you are. Paul is trying to make it clear with just this childlike run-on sentence, listen, this is who you are. And I know for me, I struggle to find my place in a room sometimes. I think in my family, I struggled with that. After I started following Jesus, I struggled with that with my friends, you know, who knew me as the guy who talked one way, joked one way, acted a certain way. And all of a sudden I had to be like, what is this, what does this now look like? I think the truth is the dilemma of the, the dilemma of security identity is still rearing its ugly head in my life at times. Whether 
that's overt and obvious. Um, we see this in our context as well. We have areas in our context where we can often feel like we're distant, like we don't know our identity or we're insecure because of our stories or our traumas. Maybe we carry this grief or we have hidden desires and that we always might be in a conversation yet we have this sneaking suspicion that we just don't belong or if only they would have, if only they would know or I think I'm alone here. I just wish I could head out and be alone, man. I just want to be with other people who get me better. So the question of Ephesians that they're sitting with, and I think we sit with, if we're all honest, is how do we engage in a new family? How do we engage in a diverse family? And Paul starts with identity and it leads to unity. So as we dive in, I want to give you some background just to provide color maybe in between the lines of, of these words that may have grown dull and gray to us in our 21st century context. So this is a Hellenistic culture, which is a Greek culture. What happened was the closing of the Old Testament, about 400 BC, um, at the end of Malachi, there was a 400 year window. And during those 400 years, this famous guy named Alexander the Great, he conquered the known world. But he didn't just conquer with war, which sociologists called hard power. He also conquered with soft power, which is cultural influence. He saw it as his God's given right to bring the Greek or Hellenistic worldview into all walks of life. This was culture and language and lifestyle and thinking and activities. This was all about formation in a way. And all formation happens systematically. So he set up things like temples and arenas, theaters and gymnasiums. All of these things were introduced to influence this all-consuming culture. And over time, this became the dominant way of thinking and living and talking, behaving, because when we, we do these things, it forms us to the deepest sense. And so temples, this is where he set up the Greek gods and the Greek gods were where you worship. That created this worldview. He set up arenas. Think of like the Roman Colosseum. And this is where they would, um, they were designed for battle, training up the guardian race and for sport. It was a strategy to keep the masses entertained, but also to desensitize them to the brutality of the way that they would impose their rule on other nations. It was also used to make statements. This is why the Colosseums became the place where many Christians were eventually martyred. And then he set up gymnasiums. Gymnasiums is where the body was worshipped, but, but don't just think of like EOS or Orange Theory or 24-hour fitness. It was more of a social club where business transactions would happen. It was where the youth were educated in philosophy and art. Debates would happen to strengthen their mind and come to discuss cultural ways. All of these things were intentionally and purposely placed systems to disciple and form them in the way of Hellenism, in the way of Greek thought and culture, and it happened. Hellenism and Greek ideology believed that human worth was found in achievement in human perfection. So the human body was worshipped, the mind took center in philosophic debates, strength, prestige, financial, financially, your family image and name, those were highly honored. And anything that didn't measure up to these standards that were enforced and reinforced through the temples, the theaters, the arenas, and the gymnasiums, this standard of perfection, right, if it didn't measure up, it was quite literally marginalized, it was cast out, done away with, or warred against. Because your value as a human being or a member of society was determined by your beauty 
or your achievement or your strength or your intellect and your wealth. This was instated um, kind of 2,000 years ago as this Hellenistic culture, but I'd say Hellenism is alive and well in the 21st century. Now you fast forward to um, 1 BC where the Greeks were defeated by the Romans who just had no originality and they just kind of copy and pasted everything that the Greeks did. They just renamed the gods and the temples, but they kept everything. And so you're left with this question as this is the culture that Paul's writing into. What do you, what does this society with no morality do? This morality that's only built on achievement and success. What do you do with the people or the things that just don't measure up? Well, at this time, there was this practice called exposing of infants. It was legal and acceptable for a father or a mother to take a child that they didn't want, either because of a handicap or a deformity or as a female child and they wanted a male child to carry on the name. Anything that they deemed as less than ideal, they would take this child that they didn't want to a, a, a mountainside wilderness and they would expose them to nature. This was just the natural outcome of a society built on perfection. Socrates in 400 BC says to the offspring of good, I suppose they will go to the pen or the creche to certain nurses who live apart in a quarter of the city. But the offspring of the inferior and any of those of the other sort who are born defective, they will properly dispose of in secret so that no one will know what has become of them. This is the condition of preserving the purity of the guardian breed. The practice of the Ephesians lived, um, that they lived in was this dominant and oppressive cultural worldview that said your worth and your value and your significance, your ability to get by in society was based on your perfection, based on your strength, based on your intellect and appearance and family name and anything less than this standard means you're thrown out. Is actually one of the reasons why Ephesus um, became a slave capital. It being a port city, so slaves could easily just be cast through there and go out to the rest of the world. But it was easier and cheaper for someone who wanted a slave to go out into the wilderness, find an exposed child, and raise that child into slavery than it was to buy an adult slave. And so, so to some people, the exposure of children was a cleansing and a relief of burden, but to others it was a financial gain. So with that in mind, this is the context that they're sitting in. And so now imagine yourself sitting in a house church in Ephesus, 15 to 20 other people with you that included Jewish converts, Gentiles that were previously deemed as unclean and unincluded, slaves, many of which were probably from exposure as children, free, males, females, the poor, the wealthy, and all other kinds of diversity you would find in a port city. With that in mind, they would hear these words. Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Now, verse 11, in him, we were also chosen 
having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity to the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put a hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal the promised Holy Spirit, who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. Blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ, holy, blameless, chosen, predestined, adopted, marked, and sealed. And I can remember specific moments in my life when people kind of out of nowhere would speak directly into the spaces of identity and how that those moments of being truly seen and understood and those realigning words from another would have me undone i mean i'm sure you have moments like that just a moment of encouragement a moment of of actually truly being seen in the midst of whatever you're going through just breaks you to your heart And in a culture of performative perfection, these words would have resonated to the deepest parts of their being. You're blessed. Now to be blessed in this culture required all sorts of work. It required sacrifices to Artemis. It required worship to Caesar, being born perfect and in the right household and achievement. They would have had to go to temple to be blessed and do more and more stuff to be blessed for whatever they were asking for. But the thing is, they never knew where they stood with the gods. So if they needed a good harvest, they would worship the god of the harvest. If they wanted babies, they would sacrifice and worship Artemis, who was the god of fertility and sexuality in all of its grotesque ways. If they wanted finances, they would give offerings all in hopes that what they were doing was good enough. They never really knew. Their God said you were blessed based off of your achievement and body and intellect and sacrifice. And here, they are hearing these words swimming in this culture. You're blessed already with every spiritual blessing in Christ. I don't even know what exactly that means. Commentators don't even like, there's a lot of conversation. I don't even know, but I want it. I want to live that blessed life. And Paul was just saying, at least this is what he's saying. You don't have to wonder what God's position is towards you. You don't need to perform. You don't need to murmur incantations from these sorcery scrolls and put together potions. You don't need to go to the temple for idol worship or beat yourself up to know you're standing before God, you're blessed. And in the Greek, that's an aorist tense. That's a past event that has current and future ramifications. That means you have been blessed, you are blessed, and you will be blessed. They would have been stopped right here. And then to this culture and industry of child exposure, Paul continues, you're holy. Holiness means set apart, but it's not this ritualistic holiness that's kind of weird. It's holiness means usefulness. When something is set apart, it's set apart for a purpose, for design, for beauty, special to God. And then he says, you're blameless. His kids were cast out because of their blemish, because of their imperfections. And he says, you're perfect. I mean, think of the stories, maybe their own story or their friend's story. Maybe they're broken over the fabric of their culture. The gods are permitting 
to discard babies. And Paul says with this piercing kind of word, like I think of when I was in seventh grade and just that R&B song hits you just right, right in the feels. And it just kind of like wrecks you. And he says it in that kind of way. You know who you are? Without blemish, without imperfection, you're spotless. I mean, those who have been marginalized and discarded for that very thing, hear these truths spoken over them. That's not who you are. You aren't less of a citizen that's easily thrown out. You are perfect. And I wonder how many of us need to just hear those truths spoken over to us today. Whatever we've been walking through, if we feel like we've been cast out or we've been less than ideal, we don't measure up with in terms of how we feel beauty-wise or financially or maybe relationally we've been thrown out and we're, we're walking with this sense of I'm so raw and vulnerable and in those spaces, God's word speaks to us and says, you're chosen, you're beautiful. You don't have to wonder God's position towards you. You're blessed already. You're perfect. And if they already couldn't see straight through the blurry vision of their tear-filled eyes, he says, you're chosen and predestined. Now, predestined and chosen was language Paul was drawing on that was kind of identifying of the, the nation of Israel. See, from the very beginning, God created human, uh, human beings. He blessed them. He blessed Abraham to be a blessing. From the beginning, in Israel's nation, in all of creation, we were called to not just be the chosen people, but to invite people into this covenant blessing, into this chosenness. This quickly kind of turned sideways and became exclusivity, but that was never God's intent. And so Israel was the chosen nation, but then Jesus comes and fulfills that. So Jesus is the chosen one. He's the chosen one. But we enter in as destined and chosen ones. And because Paul's being clear here, he says it 11 times in 12 verses, you are in Christ or you are in him. So predestined, that was never even talked about individually. That was always a corporate thing. It didn't mean that you were just like picked out from birth uh, with no freedom to choose what you wanted and God kind of already had everything pre-programmed for you to operate in a certain way. This is, this is what he's saying. Jesus is the predestined one. Before the creation of the world, since the foundation of the world, we then now get to enter into his identity by stepping into the in Christness by following him. And as we do this, every one of us, as we do this, we become the predestined and the chosen ones because his identity becomes our identity. The Ephesians wouldn't have read this letter and entered into their open table and began debating the philosophical and theological balance between free will and predeterminism. They would have wept they would have heard these words and been undone. God found us naked, alone, helpless, dead, broken, with blemishes on a distant hill. And then he clothed us in his royal robe and gave us his identity. This God is unlike the gods that you had to tirelessly and burdensomely please. You never knew where you stood with them, but this God, he walks up that mountainside to the lonely places he picks up the discarded babies that culture says wasn't fit enough and wouldn't be good enough for anything. He says, I choose you. 
See, all other gods had an unattainable ideal. In Jesus' own words, a heavy burden. But Jesus begins with identity. His finished work on the cross, you are chosen. This is the gospel. This is what it means to be in Christ. But if that's the gospel, then this next thing that Paul says encompasses the gospel. I think even all the more. He says you are adopted to sonship. Now in this time, because this has some cultural context to it that makes it so robust and beautiful. In this time, there was this legal concept called sun placing. So if you had a child in the first century, you had the legal right to disown them if they didn't perform to the standard of your family, right? If you were a wealthy family, you needed your child to behave because you needed to pass on your legacy, your estate, your your family name, the business and wealth and reputation. You need to pass that on. So son placing in the ancient culture was this. If you didn't have a biological child of your own or you had previously disowned your child for whatever reason you saw fit, you could adopt most likely a male heir, to take that place. And it was called some placing. This new son of yours would take on your family name. They would inherit all the resources of the father. It was a legal process. And once this legal process was complete, based on Roman law, you could not disown the adopted child. You could discard an unwanted baby. You could disown a disobedient child, but you could not under any circumstances separate your blessing to an adopted child through son placing. This legal process would go like this. One, you would have to make it known to the public with witnesses in a community that this adoption was happening. Two, the debts of that son would have to be paid by the adopting family. They had to be canceled totally. Three, that now adopted son would be given a new name, a new family, a new status, a new identity, and a new father. And four, that now adopted son would be given the family business, the responsibilities and privileges of that family. So when Paul says, you're chosen, and they're sitting here and they're hearing, we're adopted to sonship in Christ. This is what he's saying. God has made it public. He's making it known to everybody, you are my children. He canceled all of our debts that we stacked up in our previous life away from Christ. He gives us a new name, a new identity, a new status, and a new father. And he brings us into the family business and privileges. Oh, and no one can take that away. Paul says in Romans 8, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future or any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. J.I. Packer, a theologian, says adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. The traitor is forgiven, brought in for supper, and given the family name. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. You see, if God is like any of these other ancient relics, like these Greek gods, you don't know what your standing is with him. You have to be perfect in order to not be discarded, or you think God is perpetually examining the blemishes of your life and your deeds and your appearance and your intellect and your status. Well, we're heaping a heavy burden on our shoulders. It's too heavy for us to carry. We cannot live up to. It's crushing. It's exhausting, but that's not our God. 
And if we think that that's our God, we'll either feel the burden of trying and failing to live with this. We just have the constant guilt and shame of not being enough. We'll, we'll make bargains with God that say, God, okay, I'll do this if you do this. But honestly, we can't keep up our end of the deal or we just ditch our face, faith altogether. Because honestly, the burdens that come from living life in our own way with our own agendas and desires, even though it kind of blows up certain things in different areas, feels less burdensome than walking around with that kind of dark looming cloud cloud of a God who you don't know if he's actually pleased with you or not. I mean, that's not a relationship that I want to be in. But when we grab hold of this explosive run-on sentence that finds us broken and blemished and discarded, wondering if we're loved, we're hit with the realities of God's relentless, pursuing, choosing, extravagant love that as adopted sons and daughters cannot be taken away from us. When we grasp that, we live differently. We operate as joyful, overflowing expressions of love to everybody else because adoption is not just for me. It's not even just for you. It's for everybody who wants to receive it. It's for your neighbor. It's for the person on the street corner you just kind of drive by. It's for your in-laws. It's for disobedient children. It's for, in the language of Jesus, even our enemies. Because if God found us and we had zero to offer while we were discarded, then he found us in that place. He also found them, whoever them is for you. Do you see how groundbreaking and worldview cracking this is? This has cosmic implications. We now get to love, right? It's not self-preservation. It's not ulterior motives or image casting or projecting or swindling, but it's overflowing from the river of God's endless love. We just live differently. So I think often I read a text like this and I feel cozy about it because I kind of boil it down to my own personal salvation. Man, God saved me. And though that's true and beautiful, as adopted sons and daughters, we're now integrated back into the family business, which has an identity and a cosmic reality. An identity as loved ones, chosen ones to begin the work of love and choosing. See, personal salvation, though it may be the center, it isn't the circumference. And so Paul continues, he hits all of this identity and then he goes into this idea of what's all being brought together for a purpose of unity in all things. Verse seven, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. I mean, he's just rich in grace. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to put to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things. The Greek for that is all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. So after adoption, we have redemption through his blood for the forgiveness of sins. Notice it's not when we ask for forgiveness. It says we have it. 
we have redemption through his blood. We step into redemption. We step into forgiveness. The stream of forgiveness is already flowing. Right, So when we jump into that stream of forgiveness, it's not like we're actualizing the stream. The stream's flowing. We're just jumping in. We, we don't ask, and then God kind of considers our plea if we use the right words. We participate in what has already been actualized. We step into forgiveness. God doesn't forgive us when we ask. He has forgiven you. Our asking is just us acknowledging our need. This is why the idea of repentance flows from forgiveness, not the other way around. We don't earn forgiveness by repenting. Repentance happens because we've been forgiven. Life change happens when we reorient. We accept our need because of what we've done and we step into the forgiveness. This is why he hits identity so hard. Paul says this is the expression of the Father's good pleasure. He loves forgiving us. He doesn't have to be talked into being good or manipulated into forgiving us. He isn't stingy in his giving. He's lavish. God is blessing us. He is forgiving us. He's deeming us worthy and beautiful and holy and adopted. And this is where verse 8 kicks in. He made known to us the mystery of his will. It's no longer a mystery. Where life is headed where we're going. What's God's will for your life? You ever wonder that, God, what is your will for me? It's to step into the family business, adopted children, to enjoy the inheritance and blessing and to participate in the unity of all things. We aren't headed to heaven. Heaven is headed here in Revelation, we have this beautiful picture of this heavenly vision of this garden-like city descending and reclaiming God's authority over the earth. This is why we say here at Light, just ripping off Jesus in San Diego as it is in heaven. This is God's will for our life. Light, this is, this is what God wants for us. Church to be adopted, chosen, holy, blameless, beloved, blessed, marked by the Holy Spirit, and to bring unity in all things. See, if we remember who we are, if we remember where we're headed, and if we know where this is all going, we don't need to lose sleep over the condition of the world around us because He's using all things, though there are horrible things that God never would have condoned or created all around us, happening to us, or we might be complicit in doing ourselves. God is really good at flipping senseless evil and bringing it together to bring about goodness. We know where this is headed. When the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Unity in all things all broken pieces, fragmented things that have just flown off and spilled over the edges, the fear and the isolation and distancing and hatred that we see, not just out there, but in here. We're invited to be a part now as the family business into the reconciliation mission, the uniting of all things. Everything that's currently fragmented and disintegrated are brought together in Christ. This is why Paul starts with identity. Know you are already forgiven and chosen and adopted and blameless and loved so that 
we can join in the family business as adopted daughters and sons in the strategy of unity of all things live as loved ones us getting this is so important because it's the foundation of us being reconciled to one another to being united to one another this is why john says in his gospel we can't love god and not love our sister and brother jesus boiled the entire old testament down to love god expressed and actualized in love for neighbor, the Christ life being formed out of the way of Hellenism or Western post-truth secularism or San Diegoism, right? Whatever that is, being formed is slow and often painful, but it's because it's love. It's not coercive, it's not forcing a response, but it invites. See, it's impossible to love when we don't grasp this explosive run-on sentence, it's all about the extravagant love of God. It's hard to love if you still think your value is built on perfection. It's hard to love if you still think that your beauty is what gains affection. It's hard to love when you still think you're cast out because you think differently than your family or you didn't meet their standards or you think differently than your boss or your friends. It's hard to be loved when you still think that to be blessed in San Diego has not happened yet, whatever it looks like for you. See, when we understand the beauty of this sentence, we can now love because everything else, everything else is just performance for affection. It's codependence, it's image management and it's pleasure seeking. And none of that will ever satisfy. It'll always leave us feeling burdened and it will always demand more of us. This is the tyrant gods of Hellenism. But the way of Jesus is that he loves us into the ability to love others, joining in his cosmic plan of on earth as it is in heaven. And so we get to this final point of unity. We start with identity. You need to know who you are. Diverse people who think differently, who look differently than all, all these other people in the room. You guys are diverse, but we need to start with identity. This is who you are in Christ so we can get to unity. I mean, this church would have been filled with Republicans and Democrats. It would have been filled with single moms and widows. It would have been filled with people of color and ethnic backgrounds. It would have been filled with people who have followed Jesus for 50 years and five seconds. It would have been filled with the houseless people, houseless neighbors, or the people who live in the mansions in La Jolla. It would have been filled with children fostered and mentally handicapped. It would have been filled with intellectuals and athletes and smelly people and those wearing expensive cologne. Whatever the differences you can just fathom and imagine in your mind, the church represented that. Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female, all of it. Because unity is not uniformity and it's not unanimity. God's not robbing us of diversity. It's diversity that's celebrated in unity. He takes these broken and fragmented pieces and puts it together into this beautiful mosaic. See, unity without diversity is an echo chamber that says a lot but goes nowhere. But diversity without unity is divisiveness and fear and hatred. And I think we've seen a lot of that in our world. But the way of Jesus... The way of this church is to find ourselves at the flat ground of the cross 
where we can all find our unity, all there, all being adopted, sons and daughters entered into the family business. And once we get there in unity, diversity can happen. See, we need diversity. I need your difference of opinions and backgrounds and heritage and origins and thoughts. I need it because I can't see behind me. I can't see this 360 view that we need in order to move forward and and to be co-creators with God, to bring restoration of all things. We need diversity at the flat ground of the cross. In verse 12, it's in order that we who were first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. See how we live in this diverse unity grounded in the love of Christ that chose us and adopted us will be for the praise of his glory. We are the case study to the rest of the watching world. So when we live into this identity and love out of this identity, unity in all things under Christ becomes the reality that moves the world towards its end, which is on earth as it is in heaven. And I think I'm desperate for that. Desperate for me to step into this reality of this identity that's now mine. I'm desperate to see the unity of all things, to to see others to step into their identity, to live out of this expression of love, not seeking to, to get love and affirmation through all of these other ways, trying to please the quote-unquote Hellenistic gods, but to realize who we are in Christ, who we are as adopted and chosen and beloved and found in the distant hills, those we, were, we used to be discarded, but now we're brought in. And when we live from that, I'm desperate for us to live from that. Because when we do that, our church will look different. Our families will look different. Our friendships will look different. The way that we treat the person, the baristas that we talk to, the people we walk by on the street, the nations, everything will begin to look different when we step into the reality first of our identity as beloved children adopted by God. I'd love just to pray. Lord, I think that... Oftentimes we can have things spoken over us. We can hear truths, but sometimes those truths can just hit us in our heads. Lord, I pray that through this time that you would take words and you would sink them into our hearts. Spirit, that you would work in our lives and our hearts to establish this incredible, robust truth of our identity. You would even highlight areas of our lives that maybe we're living out of false identities or maybe our view of you is just off and we're living in accordance with that view as if you're some Hellenistic God. But would you align our eyes with yours to see you as you are, beautiful, holy, and good? And would you help us now to see in the reflection of your eyes who we are and who our neighbor is? And Lord, help us to love like that. Help us to breathe your love and unity into all of creation because we're a part of the family business. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through his word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com.